Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there, space monkeys. You're back for episode 81 of Cycling in Alignment, and today I have a conversation with Dee Dee Berry and Julie Young. And today we talk about all things involved in women's bike fitting. Well, not really all the things, but we talk all of our conversation is about women's bike fitting. That's really how that should be phrased. So Dee Dee and Julie are releasing their own podcast. I think it's going to come out later this summer. I don't know what the title is going to be yet. I don't think they figured that out at the time that we agreed I would publish this episode, but it will be published on the Fast Talk Labs channel. And if you are a woman or you are interested in women's cycling, then I think this is going to be an excellent resource for you. Julie and Didi are both enormously experienced in the sport and they've continued their careers helping athletes in different ways as they've moved beyond the competitive phase of their cycling. Well, Julie still races. I don't think Dee does. In any case, they've got a lot of expertise to share with you. So I recommend you stay tuned for the publishing of their pod title to be determined. I suggested Young Berries, although the spelling isn't quite right because Dee Dee spells her last name B-E-R-R-Y. That's her married name. She's married to Michael Berry. In any case, check it out. I recommend it. I think it's going to be awesome. This podcast is sort of an interview format, and they are really interviewing me in anticipation of releasing this same episode on their channel. So that means I do most of the talking, but we do have a bit of a discourse, and you get some nuggets from each of them. One bit I'll mention a couple bits I listened to some of this pod later for editing purposes and I realized I made a small mistake at one point I referred to the superior rotation of the pelvis which there is no such thing as far as my anatomical understanding what I meant to say was posterior rotation of the pelvis so there's a little slip at the tongue there I always try to be as conscious as possible when I'm speaking 
and choose my words with the utmost care. However, occasionally words become juxtaposed in my mind. This is probably because my corpus callosum is not quite firing on all cylinders at that microsecond. So please disregard any errors and insert the correct word using your own mind movies. Also, we do refer to one of my favorite articles, which was published on thestar.com. It was written by, oh, sorry about the wind noise there. It was written by Todd Rose in 2016. And the title of the article is When the U.S. Air Force Discovered the Flaw of Averages. And there are two main sections to this article. Those of you who have heard my pod before will you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first part is about how the Air Force was crashing all their planes and training and they couldn't quite figure it out. And the second part of the article is probably more applicable to the conversation with Dee Dee and Julie, but I didn't reference it during our discussion because you can't always talk about all the things. But it's about, of all things, a gynecologist named Robert L. Dickinson. I swear to God, you can't make this stuff up. And he made a sculpture uh, with his collaborator, a guy named Abram Belsky. And they sculpted a figure based on size data collect from, collected from 15,000 young adult women. I'll read a bit from the article here. Dr. Dickinson was an influential figure in his day chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Brooklyn Hospital, president of the American Gynecological Society, and chairman of obstetrics at the American Medical Association. He was also an artist, the Rodin of obstetrics, as one colleague put it. Can you imagine having that title? I love it. And throughout his career, he used his talents to draw sketches of women, their various shapes and sizes, to study correlations of body types and behavior. So they held a contest and what they did is they asked women of the time to send in their anthropometric data and compare it to this perfect sculpture, which of course they named Norma. The winners of the contest would get $100, $50, and $25 in war bonds. So that tells you a little bit about the era here. I think this was in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, on November 23rd, 1945, the Plain Dealer, which I believe is a newspaper, announced its winner in Cleveland. So, in addition to displaying the sculpture, the Cleveland Health Museum began selling miniature rep reproductions of Norma, promoting her as the ideal girl, launching a Norma craze. A notable physical anthropologist argued that Norma's physique was a kind of perfection of the bodily form. Artists proclaimed her beauty to be an excellent standard, and physical education instructors used her as a model for how young women should look. And you know, if you've listened to my podcast in the past, how much I dislike the word should. Suggesting exercise based on a student's deviation from the ideal. So, I love this whole phenomenon. What's interesting about it is that the big picture takeaway is that when the Air Force was crashing airplanes and everyone put all their thinking caps on and tried to figure out why, eventually they were forced to conclude that they had to make airplane cockpits more adjustable to accommodate the high degree of variability in the human body. What they concluded when they basically came to pretty much the same results after this contest 
to see how many women's bodies resembled that of Norma, this sculptural ideal. The conclusion was that American women were out of shape and didn't measure up to a standard of beauty and that they ought to lose weight. So I think that's all fascinating. Uh, sorry, ladies. History has not been kind. Thank you for listening as always. If you have comments, hit me on the gram. You can drop them into the comments there. That's the best place to get me. If you direct message me on Instagram, I found that platform to be somewhat frustrating, to be honest. It seems like it's very inconsistent and my alerts aren't good. And sometimes I see messages that people sent weeks ago and I don't get them, even though I'm checking, etc. I don't know, maybe I'm just too friggin' old for Instagram. That is one possibility I'm willing to accept. In any case, if you did message me and it took me a while to get back to you, I appreciate your patience with that process. I'm in, I'm actively searching for a better way to have this happen. And it may just simply be more Q and A sections, uh, podcasts specifically devoted to reader Q and A's, audience Q and A's in the future. In any case, please enjoy the discussion with Julie and Didi. I found it to be, well, um, interesting from my perspective, but I did most of the talking. So hopefully that means you'll find the same. Thanks for listening. Pedal faster, pedal consciously. Onward. Thanks for joining me, Julie Young, and my co-host, Dee Dee Berry, for the launch of our podcast. In this podcast, we will focus on issues specific to the female endurance athlete. Our first guest is our friend Colby Pierce. Colby is a pro cyclist, former pro cyclist and Olympian who won several national championships and held the U.S. hour record. Colby is currently the lead coach for Team EF Coaching and renowned bike fitter. Through the 90s and 2000s when he was racing, Colby was known to have the latest and fastest bikes and technology. He understood aerodynamics, bike fit, and marginal gains before most other riders were considering the details. Hi, Colby. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Julie. Thank Would you. you tell the, uh, hi, yeah. Would you tell the listeners a little more detail about what you've been up to? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, honored to be here. Um, that's funny. You mentioned marginal gains in advance. I think there's probably something to that. I, was, um, I refer to that in a little more colloquial colloquial way. I'm, I was dorkier than most of my compadres, my colleagues. Uh, I unturned all the aerodynamic stones as a young rider. And then I think one of my teammates on Shackley, Matthew Koshar, made the observation, the astute observation that in 95, I was well ahead of the curve. And then by 98, I think the curve had kind of caught up to me and my results got worse in time trials because other people started figuring out how to be arrow. So I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing or if it just is. But um, yeah, I've been working with the Team EF coaching program, which is may, perhaps a little confusing to some people. They think that I'm working with the World Tour team. Uh, I am in the sense that I have an ongoing dialogue with the other coaches on that team and with Jonathan Vodders, but we coach gen pop, general population riders. That is anybody who wants to go faster on a bike, whether your goal is to learn how to ride your first criterium or go faster in your Grand Fondo or uh, enter your first gravel race, whatever that is. That's Those are the people we coach. And I manage the team of coaches there. We've got eight uh, world-class coaches who are under that program, and it's been really rewarding for me to teach them. Uh, one you know, interesting thing about coaching that I've spoken with you about, Julie, is that it's an 
industry that has grown tremendously in the last decade, but we don't have a lot of opportunities necessarily unless we seek them out to share ideas with our colleagues. And so sometimes it can become a little bit of a reflecting call of your own sort of lines of thought, your own methodologies. So when I get to teach the other coaches, it's really powerfully growth inducing for me because I get the opportunity to teach people the lines of thought that I've used for years in coaching athletes. And then I get to have them, you know, respond to that and ask relevant questions like, well, why? (laughs) And then I have to sort of go backwards in my mind and understand the process that I use in selecting that methodology or why I'm choosing to give a certain rider a certain workout. And that's been really a powerful learning experience for me. And it's helped me grow as a coach and also helped me examine my methods. So that's what's up. That's, that's, that's great, Colby. And I know we've chatted about this, but yet the coaching can be such a solitary practice. Mm -hmm. And so it is really neat to have that collaborative effort and, and also really appreciate what you're doing in terms of education, because, you know, anybody can call themselves a coach. They they can't necessarily be a coach, but they can call themselves a coach. So that education that you're providing is invaluable. Mm -hmm. I think collaboration's incredibly important for just moving the needle forward on all aspects of, of cycling. Um, but today, like we, we want to tap into your knowledge a little bit about bike fitting. Um, cause this is an important area to performance too, that, that can often be overlooked. Um, and particularly for women. So we're going to discuss some of the similarities and differences between men and women. And although I believe we're all on a gender spectrum, And of course there's individual variants. What I've seen from working with athletes over the years is that there's some general biomechanical differences between men and women that directly relate to fit. So Colby, we'd like to just get a sense from your experience of working with athletes, what your thoughts are on some of the most common biomechanical fit differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So good question. Um, You know, again, with the, understanding that we are speaking in generalities, right? And that's the point to paint with a broad brush so that we can then pick out the individual differences. And I'll predicate that part of the conversation with the one most important role that I learned from my fit instructor. That was Steve Hogg. I went to Australia in 2011, I think. I don't know. I'm getting old, so it's hard to remember dates sometimes. But uh, I went there and studied with Steve for a month in Sydney. And the, the overarching principle he taught me about bike fitting is there are no rules in bike fitting. Like that's the only rule. Meaning when an individual walks through your door, all your preconceived notions about if then equations or um, certain conditions bringing about a certain solution will go out the window. As soon as you start to get a bit of hubris or a concept in your idea, like, okay, every time I see a rider who comes to the door with this problem, I apply the solution and it seems to work. You'll get four or five riders in a row where that will work. And then the second you begin to associate that equation with success, you'll have five riders that walk through your door who blow that apart and need a completely different solution. So that's the underlying concept for this is that what works for them, the masses or the bell curve probably never works for the individual. That said, some of the themes that I see in differences between men and women are commonly uh, what Paul Check would refer to as Q angle, which is similar to Q factor in cycling, right? And this is what Steve would refer to as foot separation distance. So the, the distance 
between your feet uh, as determined by the length of the pedal axles, the length of the bottom bracket axle, and the angle of the crank arms, right? And then the number of chain rings. So this impacts the distance between your feet and there's a relationship or there ought to be a relationship between the center of the hip, which I would define as sort of the geometric center of the femoral head, the center of the knee, which I would define as the tibial tuberosity, which is the little kind of vertical tenon-shaped bumps just under your kneecap, and the space around the second toe or distance between the second and third toe. So we can basically call that the middle of the foot. And when I'm looking at the rider from the front or the uh, anterior view, and I'm watching them ride on the trainer, what I want to see is a nice tidy relationship between those three points. That's the center of the hip, the center of the knee, and the center of the foot, basically. And there's a few caveats to this, but commonly what we can see is women have a little wider hip distance and then they have their feet pinned against the crank arms. Or in some cases it can be the opposite. But I would say on average, uh, well, it depends a lot on the height of the woman. Again, it's hard to paint in generalities here. So I'll just explain the concept and then we can apply it. But really what we want in most cases is a tidy line, meaning the line is pretty close to vertical. So if the hips are a certain distance, we want the center of the feet to be under that distance. And when that happens, the knee will tend to track in plane with those. Maybe not precisely, but it'll be usually improved. Now, one really important side note I'll make is that if I'm fitting someone and I make a small change to their foot separation distance or their Q factor, meaning I move their cleats laterally underfoot one way or the other, or I put them on different pedal axles and they have knee problems immediately, to me that's a sign that the rider's really lacking a sense of durability and that they might be really served by some off the bike conditioning, specifically stretching or movement in the frontal plane. Think about the frontal plane as when we've seen that Da Vinci diagram that we're all familiar with of the man standing with his arms and legs extended and they're in a circle and they, you can see that the wingspan and the leg span are about the same when measured from the center line. So imagine that guy doing a cartwheel. A cartwheel is the ultimate frontal plane exercise, right? So moving in the frontal plane is moving laterally. It's pretty much the opposite of every movement we do in cycling, which is in cycling, we only move in the sagittal plane, right? Which is when you're pedaling, that's the sagittal plane moving uh, forward from your belly button, we'll say. So when we move your cleats on, under the foot, we're moving the feet laterally. We're increasing or decreasing the foot separation distance. We're moving the body. We're moving the feet in the frontal plane. And if the knees can't tolerate that, then we, that's a big red flag. So in women, commonly, we might, it, it would be common, I would say, to see the feet kind of pinned against the crank arms, uh, meaning the hips are a little bit wider than the center line of the feet. And if that's the case, then we want to move the feet out a little bit sometimes. The balance being that if the rider's really challenged, we also need to make sure we educate them about movement in the frontal plane and get them to do that, whether that's simple movements or whether it's mobility, whether they've got really tight IT bands or um, sometimes we get knee lateral knee tracking issues. And to that point, uh, we think about the joints in, in there's an order of operations in the joints. Remember, the force in cycling is originating from the hip, right? You're driving from the hip. And so there's a 
order of operations between those three joints. The order is hip is the king or queen, the foot is the prince or princess, and the knee is the slave. So what I'm saying is that when we generate power from the hip, if the foot isn't in really the, the optimal relationship to that hip, then the knee is the joint that will usually suffer first. So this is why knee problems are, knee and low back problems are the two most commonly reported um, injury areas in cycling, I think, other than acute you know, abrasions from gravity-induced collisions with the earth, otherwise known as a crash. That's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, what are some of the ways that, or I guess exercises that you would recommend for women mm -hmm. in order to sort of make the knee track better or yep. create a better relationship between those three points of contact? Yeah. Great question. So on the one hand, we have mechanical devices and aids that can help offset pronation or supination. Um, and I'll mm -hmm. define those. And then on the other hand, we have off the bike exercises and there's a real art to applying both of those in the right circumstances based on what you see. So probably most people have heard the terms pronation and supination and pronation is when the foot collapses the arch, the, the medial arch, which is the big arch between the heel and the ball of the foot. When that collapses and the angle smashes, the ankle smashes in towards the crank arm is my, how you think about it. So pronation is when the foot collapses towards the top tube. And we can also use the term pronation to think globally. So pronation can also be used to describe any joint that collapses in towards the midline. So a shoulder, if you bring your shoulders in towards your sternum, that's a pronated shoulder, right? And we tend to zip code things in our minds. So we think about the ankle, ankle collapsing in towards the crank arm and we think, okay, the ankle is pronating. But of course, pronation, just as there's a relationship of king or queen, prince or princess and slave, it doesn't just happen at the ankle. So we can't just fix it at the ankle. So what I'm saying is pronation travels up the leg to at least the pelvis minimum. And so when that happens, the femur will rotate inside and the kneecap will dive towards the top tube. So when we have a pronated ankle or an ankle that's not strong enough to support the weight of the force from the hip, then the knee will rotate and the, the kneecap will actually rotate interior. So instead of the kneecap pointing straight forward like headlights, um, the kneecaps will cross, right? Because both knees are point. If we have it on both sides, both kneecaps will point and cross. So then it's like we have our lightsabers doing battle. <laughs> if you're a supinator, the headlights would dive, would never converge. They would diverge and they would point out. So then our lightsabers are in the, we're about to attack each other position, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, weird analogy, but we want our headlights to be more or less parallel while we're pedaling, meaning the kneecap is pointing straight forward. If there was a, a headlight, a beam, a laser beam or a lightsaber coming out of that head cap, kneecap. And so we can use things like wedges or an orthotic footbed, especially a structural supportive footbed to offset pronation and hold that foot in a more neutral position. However, if we're still generating power at the hip in a way that promotes a pattern of pronation, then we're not really solving the problem. We're sort of band-aiding it. That doesn't mean that having a footbed or some wedging, some medial wedging, meaning the thicker side is towards the orientation of the crank arm, which would then offset pronation by pushing the foot up and out. It doesn't mean it can't be useful in the short term. However, as a bike fitter, I would say my general long-term philosophy is to work people 
in ways that will help that. And so to your question, Didi, on off-the-bike exercises, I'm looking at things like um, unstable surfaces and balance exercises that will help fire the muscles of the foot, right? And so what I like to do is think about the foot as a tripod. And we, when we do these types of exercises, we want to think of three even points of weight distribution. So if we look at the underside of the foot, we're, we're thinking about the space under the first metatarsal, that's the ball of the big toe, the fifth metatarsal, that's the ball of the pinky toe, and the center of the calcaneus, which is the center of your heel. And so if you take your fingers, your thumb, and put it under your calcaneus, and then your, your pointer finger and put it under the first the ball of your first toe, and then the uh, middle finger and put it under the fifth toe, and you touch there, what we want is three even points of contact, right? We want those to have even pressure. And when someone's pronating, they're going to feel more pressure under the ball of the big toe. And so we want to then emphasize the little the space under the ball of the little toe and the calcaneus. So when you're doing balance exercises, you could simply stand on one leg and bring your other knee to the chest. You could do what I call a clock drill. So you're standing on one leg and you're reaching out with the opposite toe, touching at 12, touching at one. This would be if you're reaching with the right leg, touching at two. Then we bring the foot back, then you reach out, touch again at three, bring the foot back, reach out, touch behind you at four, do the best you can to touch at five. So it's almost like a mini reverse lunge and at six. And then retrace back to, to 12. And then you would put down the right foot then reach forward with the left and go 12. And then it would be 11, 10, nine, et cetera. Um, once you master that with even pressure across that tripod, then you progress to an uneven or an, an unstable surface. So maybe you're using um, a Dyna disc. If you're familiar with that, it's a, a blue disc that's about 12 inches across and it's got a nubby surface on one side and it's inflatable. So it's kind of wobbly, right? Or you progress to a ba uh, balance board. And this is just one example of, I mean, there's so many exercises we can do to strengthen the foot and ankle. And this is really important because if we're driving force from the hip and we want it to get into that pedal effectively, we have to have a strong chain the whole way down. You know, the weak link of the chain is always the one that breaks. Well, I got bad news for all of us. As cyclists, shoes, cycling shoes tend to put our feet asleep and they tend to shut down the stability of the foot and ankle. Why? Because a cycling shoe could be thought of as a prosthetic device. It's a rigid lever. So, and as a general principle, all prosthetic devices weaken the body. How? Well, let's go through a simple thought experiment. Imagine you get in a minor fender bender, you get whiplash. You go to the doctor, the doctor tells you you need to wear a neck brace for six months. You put your neck brace on, you're cruising around doing all your stuff. You take the neck brace off after three months because you're so healthy. And then you do an examination. And what do you find? The, the muscles that support the head are, of course, weaker than they were before the accident because the neck brace did the job of supporting your head in gravity. So those muscles atrophy because the body's always responding to stress. And not only is it getting stronger where there is stress applied, it intentionally atrophies muscles where there is no stress applied, otherwise known as if you don't use it, you lose it. And so the neck muscles are really weak because of that prosthetic device. Well, cycling shoe works the same way. You know, if you, this is really easily demonstrable, go ride your road bike or your townie with flip-flops and feel how, and then go up a steep hill, feel how active your foot has to be to prevent that flip-flop from kind of flexing and bending over the pedal, right? Especially if you have a little small platform pedal, uh, not a big platform pedal. 
your foot has to be very active to kind of drive the, the crank arm because you're transmitting all this force from the hip. We think of it as traveling down the femur and into the knee and then into the ankle. But if the ankle's floppy and the foot's floppy, then the force isn't going to go there. So my point is when we lean on these cycling shoes to deliver a uh, force for us, they are an effective device. They're a, they're a part that makes our cycling much more efficient, but they also make weak and lazy feet. Did I wander off too much there? No, it's really yeah. good. Um, yeah, I mean, I I guess I want to understand though a little bit better just how you sort of address uh, like the specific recommendations mm -hmm. for athletes like around like you know I understand like doing the balance board and all that, but then what about just like building general strength? Mm -hmm. Like like I I really firmly believe that so much of our strength actually emanates from the core and, and the hip flexibility. Yep. And without that, I know for me personally, as a cyclist, without like a lot of core work and, and good hip flexibility, which is one of my weaknesses that I have to constantly work on, I start developing all kinds of other problems. Yep. So I know for me personally, when I raced, I, I had to really stay on top of that year round or I would run into knee problems or um, like I had falling arches pronation. So mm -hmm. I, I felt like everything stayed more aligned. Actually, when I, when I did a lot of cross training through the winter and then I maintained a lot of core work through the, through the season. Yeah. Um, and I, I had, and I, I don't necessarily think what I did was, was right or, or wrong for anyone else. Um, but I did sort of like over time, figure out a formula that kind of like helped me keep all that on track because I feel like, when you're a cyclist and you're riding your bike every day, you just become so specific and so reliant on all like the prosthetic devices and the, yep. you know, the up and down movement, you know, just pedaling circles all day that you do develop all these other weaknesses if you don't continue to work on them and, um, and issues and problems sort of creep up on you that might not otherwise. I completely agree. So, yeah. 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 You know, that's a funny thing about cycling. Um, it's a weird little sport because we tend to think of cycling as a healthy sport and from most lenses it is. Meaning if you're sedentary, if you're just laying on the couch or maybe you're getting over COVID or maybe you just haven't exercised in a number of years because you've been busy with life and you start riding a bike, you're going to increase your overall health. You're going to burn calories. You're going to get your heart rate up and improve metabolic capacity and improve aerobic conditioning. You're going to start to strengthen your legs. Although I, strengthen is technically, I think the wrong word. Really what we're doing is making our legs more durable right? Because cycling is a durability sport. You do thousands of pedal strokes, even in a one hour ride, you're never really near peak force, but that's a technical point. So when, when we get off the couch and we start riding, we definitely improve health and we do move towards a higher status of health. However, if you only ride a bike and do nothing else long-term, there's a point when you will plateau out, and then your health, your global health will start to actually regress for exactly the reasons you described, Didi, which are that mm -hmm. as we continue to ride a bike, we get some asymmetrical problems that can spin up or be upregulated, and we start to only condition certain muscles in the sagittal plane. That's the pedaling plane, you know, parallel to, uh, it's the same movement as running and walking, right? But we're never moving in the frontal plane. We have very little rotational plane movement. And so when we end, even in the sagittal plane, our movement is very restricted. We're never fully extending the knee. 
right? We're never fully extending the hip. So it can lead to things like hip flexors becoming tighter over time. So just as you discovered, you have to offset that with a certain amount of mobility. And the same thing is true of core. Cycling is a sport that requires uh, deep core in order to effectively perform this sport, especially with intensity. But it also, and it also requires internal and external hip rotators to be firing, but it doesn't work those muscles effectively to train them while you're cycling. So in order to stay in balance, you have to do some of this stuff off the bike. And that sounds like exactly what you're describing mm -hmm. to you. You figured out that with mobility work, with stretching, with cross training and with core, a focus on core, you were able to maintain your cycling at a very high level for a long time, right? So uh, some of the specifics, I agree with you 100% about core, especially about training the inner unit of, of the core, right? We might call it, or the deep core. And I would define this as there are four muscles we can think of very, a bit simplistically about the deep core. So this is the pelvic floor. It's like a cylinder that controls and stabilizes the viscera, which are your guts and your spine. And this is made up of on the bottom, the, the floor is the pelvic floor. The top is the diaphragm. The front side is the transversus abdominis muscle, which is like a cummerbund, right? So if you rented a tuxedo like I did in high school, you got a cummerbund, which is like <laughs> the male, it's like a belt. And it has these um, pleats that go horizontally. And that's the way the transversus abdominis muscle goes across your belly. And it's not the rectus abdominis, which is your six pack Instagram muscle. That thing's, that thing's useful, but mostly aesthetic. The real core strength comes from the transversus abdominis. And then in the backside is your multifidus, which is about one of the coolest looking muscles we have in the body. So if you want to see something cool, go, go make the Instagrams or the Wikipedias. But when these muscles are firing, when they're innervated properly and they're conditioned well, and they are firing on the bike, then we have control of our hips and our spine are locked into one unit. And then when you stand up on a steep climb and you pull on the bar and you push down with the same, the ipsilateral leg, the same sided leg, then the bike rockets forward. But if those muscles are not firing, when you pull with one arm and push with the leg, then the pelvis twists, the, the shoulders rotate and twist and force doesn't really go into the pedal the way we want it to. So you're ineffective at delivering that force into the pedals. So deep core work is essential. So we can talk about things like um, dead bugs, uh, horse stance activities, which is a series of exercises that Paul Cech recommends. He's one of the people I've studied with extensively. This you can think of as bird dogs, but more a little more sophisticated than a bird dog exercise, if you're familiar with that. That would be like you're in a quadruped stance, so on all fours and you're raising one arm and the opposite leg and extending each of those limbs out. Uh, and you can progress this again by using unstable surfaces. You could do those on a BOSU ball, or you could do them on a stability ball, right? If you're advanced, you can do them with weight. So there's a whole series of variations in those types of exercises. Uh, another good exercise, planks are not bad. Most people these, this day and age, when I ask them what they're doing for core, their response is planks and crunches. Okay. Um, planks aren't a bad exercise. In fact, I would say there's no such thing as a good or bad exercise. There's sort of just a properly prescribed exercise or an improperly prescribed exercise, right? Meaning it's either going to challenge you in the right way and get the right results, or it's going to challenge you in the wrong way and take your body off where we want to go. The perfect analogy for this is a, a bike wheel. So imagine that your wheel's really out of true. 
So the rim is wobbling, right? And it's, it's not true at all, so it's hitting the frame. So you take it to your mechanic. You say, okay, I need you to fix this wheel. And what, what are the characteristics of an untrue wheel? Some of the spokes are too tight and some are too loose, because the, either because the rim is bent or because some of the spokes have lost tension. So a good mechanic will tighten the loose spokes and loosen the tight spokes to bring the wheel into a straighter alignment. This is akin to strengthening the muscles that are long and weak in the body. And it's akin to stretching the muscles that are tight and short in the body. So this is our first principle of bringing someone into better alignment. So when we're talking about corrective exercise, first we have to understand the muscle length tension relationships. And so when we, this is why arbitrarily applying strength or arbitrarily applying stretching can be a little bit hazardous because if you took your wheel to a mechanic and said, fix it, and he said, well, okay, I'm only going to stretch this wheel, he would just loosen all the spokes. <laughs> and that would work really well with the tight spokes. It would bring them into better, better balance. But the spokes that are too loose, it would be disastrous and the wheel would lose tension. So we have a system mm -hmm. that you, is too stretched, the entire wheel loses tension and then it falls apart. And what's magic about a wheel is that it's made up of 32 or 28 or 24 spokes. And each spoke by itself is just a piece of wire. It's nothing special. But we put 28 of them in the right pattern and then we attach them to a rim and we tension all those spokes equally and suddenly you get this structure that can handle all this radial load and hit potholes and goes sailing around corners and goes 60, 70, 90 kilometers an hour and hold up because it has global tensegrity, which is a term that's really tension and integrity brought together. That was a term coined by Thomas Myers, who's a fascial guy. And so this structure is magical, but it, it's dependent on the tension of the individual units being somewhat cohesive. So if the spokes, if we, conversely, if we over-tighten all the spokes, if you take it to the mechanic, it's like, well, I'm just gonna make you lift weights and he tightens all the spokes, that would work really well on the spokes that are too loose. But on the ones that are already short and tight, this is how muscles respond to load. This is how we get out of balance. They tend to become either short and tight or long and loose. If you, just, if you continue to strengthen the muscles that are too tight, then the wheel also will not be a good structure. It won't be straight, and too many of the spokes will be too tight and they might break. So what's our analogy there is crunches. So when we think about the cycling position, if we're flexing our spine and we're kind of have this rainbow shaped curved spine and we're reaching for the bars, that's a position that shortens the rectus abdominis and the front side musculature of the body of the torso. And what does a crunch do? It reinforces that same pattern. And so if we're already spending so much time in that pattern, do we want to make those, the rectus abdominis and the muscles on the front side of our torso shorter and tighter? Well, they probably already are short and tight. And if you've got tight hip flexors in the front, do we want to do more crunches that are going to reinforce that same pattern under load? I would argue not. We want to open the body and extend the spine, right? And have some core exercises that involve extension of the spine or at least a neutral spine. So there are different ways to accomplish that objective. So horse stance is one of those. Um, instead of doing a curl or a crunch on the ground, you might do a curl or a crunch on a stability ball where you lean all the way back and open your chest towards the sky. So you're actually extending the spine, pushing your sternum up towards the ceiling and opening your shoulders, right? That's gonna be a, a core position that then you do a crunch from that position from the fully extended to the fully flexed position. And when you do that, then you're working the muscles through a much greater range of movement and you're to some degree offsetting some of the crunched position we have in cycling.
So there's one, another example. Colby, those are great analogies. And uh, thanks for unpacking that. I mean, it, it, it definitely kind of addresses the issue of tensioning the body properly. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's just so, so key to performance. Um, I want to move on though now to sort of the bike body relationship mm -hmm. and specifically related to women. Um, I think it's imp important to address that, you know, traditionally women have been underserved in the bike market. And I think we should take a moment to discuss why. Um, I, I kind of liken it, it dates back to the 1990s, really, when there was a big shift in the bike industry from predominantly steel bikes, which were manufactured in a really wide range of sizes, mm -hmm. and often custom geometry was available, to carbon bikes, which at the time, uh, you know, carbon bikes were developed to lessen the weight because power to weight is so important in bikes. And Carbon bikes were, you know, once a frame or mold was made, they're relatively easy to produce and scale. Um, and, but at that time in the 1990s, when they made that shift, uh, carbon frame and mold manufacturers wanted to reduce stock investments and as did bike shops. Um, and so the major manufacturers began building compact geometry carbon stock size frames and a really limited three to six size range, basically small, medium, large, or some manufacturers would add extra small or extra large. But basically these frames were designed to fit the majority of the population of carbon bike purchasers at that time, which were predominantly male. Mm -hmm. But they were a compromise to anyone outside the bell curve of the fit spectrum, including a really large proportion of women. Yep. And as more and more women started cycling seriously as a sport in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the demand for high-end bikes that fit women properly increased. Um, and women were just generally having a hard time weighting themselves properly, particularly if they were small and you know sat outside that, that bell curve of the fit spectrum. So, I mean, I, I think it was late 90s, early 2000s, where I remember the major bike manufacturers finally began designing and building stock size carbon frames specifically for women. And today, most bike manufacturers have a women's line. Um, some of them are better than others at sort of addressing some of the fit specific issues. But I guess, Colby, it'd be great if you could speak to you know, some of the biomechanical differences that women-specific frames address. Like, how are they geometrically different? Right, right. And is there value for all women? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a great point. Like, I think this is the problem with modern bikes or a problem with modern bikes is that we have several things happening. As you pointed out, when carbon manufacturers came really to the forefront and more carbon manufacturing became more popular, frame sizing choices got reduced because of that mold problem. Right, so each mold, uh, a new mold is required for each carbon frame, and each mold probably costs I don't know five hundred thousand dollars or maybe more. And so, for a company to be profitable, they had to cut down on the number of molds. And as you pointed out, you know when we have a steel frame or a tie frame, you can make an infinite number of geometries. Really, it just comes down to what you're willing to deal with, or you can go custom. So women who are on the shorter end of the size range really have a hard time fitting on bikes. Uh, and I did some work this off season with the uh, human powered health team. And I did some fitting with Michaela McPherson, for example, and Kaya Schmidt, who are both pretty tiny riders, very powerful riders, but not super tall. 
And we had an enormous problem getting their handlebars low enough. That's one of the biggest challenges that women have, especially competitive women who want to be focused on events where the demands of their event are aerodynamics, right? So broadly speaking, when I think of fitting, I think of the physiology of the rider, how the rider presents to me at the time, their size, their uh, anthropometric measurements, right? Their um, build, their flexibility, their stability, their strength. And then I weigh that against the demands of their event. So if someone comes to me and says, my goal is the unbound gravel race, that's a different event, far different event than I want to be US uh, professional time trial champion, for example. And generally speaking, the more aerodynamic the demands of the event are, the more we have to horizontalize the torso as a general rule. And whenever we have a horizontal torso, we have to have the bars low enough to allow that torso to get low. And there's some big challenges in geometry for shorter women, for sure, because we start to run into geometrical problems with the wheel size. You can't make the head tube short enough to drop the stem any lower is one challenge. And then also we have a problem with toe overlap. So for shorter women, the bike gets to be short enough to where they don't have too much reach to get to the bars. And when they're turning the bike at low speed and they turn the bars, the front wheel will hit the shoe. And then they, you're at risk of just falling over, right? Because you hit the shoe and it stops the bike and then you end up on, on the ground, hopefully not. So there's some geometrical challenges there, but I'm a little reticent to draw too many conclusions about how frames should or shouldn't be designed for men or women because of that rule in fitting, which is there's no rules in fitting. Meaning we can make general generalities and say some women have longer legs and shorter torsos, but for every time I say that, I see five women who have short legs and long torsos. And so there are some manufacturers who sort of clued into this and stopped marketing so much to men and women specifically. What they do is they simply make bikes and they make a variety of equipment or some component manufacturers have tipped into this too. And they say, for example, SMP makes saddles and they just say a human pelvis is a human pelvis. Some are wider, some are narrower. And when you look at x-rays and diagrams of different pelvises, we can see that this is true. In fact, there's a relatively famous paper written by someone, I have no idea who at the moment, I can try and find it later and we can put it in the show notes if that's interesting for you, about a study where they, where someone took a huge database of pelvises, uh, meaning photos of pelvises, and they presented it to a series of doctors who were qualified to evaluate the pelvises and asked them to, ba- to figure out the gender of the subject based on the dimensions and photos of the pelvis. And they were like, horrendously wrong on their estimates. So what does that tell us? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That is surprising. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Um, it, Yeah. It's super counterintuitive because we all assume that women have, you know, there's that expression childbearing hips, right? But as it turns out, that's not actually the case. Also, the other thing I think we underestimate is the incredible variability of the human body. And there's an article I would like to send you to put in the show notes for sure. And it's quite fascinating. It's one of my favorite pieces of reading that I found recently. It's titled, How the U.S. Air Force Got the Flaw of Averages, or Discovered the Flaw of Averages, right? Which is a play on words, because normally we talk about the law of averages. And I'll just synopsize this very quickly, but somewhere in the early 1900s, the U.S. Air Force was crashing a lot of aircraft in 
training exercises and they couldn't figure out why. And they dug and dug and dug and they thought it was the planes and they thought it was the engineering and they thought it was this and that. And finally they determined it was the cockpit and that the cockpit dimensions weren't correct. So they came up with this grand plan. They measured 4,000 elite, uh, not elite, they measured 4,000 Air Force pilots, which by definition in the early 1900s was mostly white men, a relatively homogenized group because as to be selected to be in the Air Force, you already had to have uh, certain proportions and you couldn't have things like fallen arches. That was one of the things that wouldn't admit, they wouldn't admit to the military if you had you know, air quotes, fallen arches. So I guess I wouldn't have made the cut because I used to have fallen arches as a kid. So um, I've done a lot of work to change that, by the way. So they took 4,000 pilots. They measured 30 different anthropometric measurements, uh, redundant statement. And they tallied these and averaged them. And their goal was, their, their plan was, of course, to take these 30 measurements, boil it down to the most relevant ones, give a range, plus or minus, and then build the cockpit around that range. And then voila, their problem would be solved. But this was the interesting part of the data. So they had 4,000 pilots, took 10 of the relevant measurements, well, like torso length, uh, wingspan, probably femur length, some other stuff, inseam length, and they gave a huge range, plus or minus 15% on this range. And then they asked themselves, how many of the 4,000 pilots were within this range? How many of them were within average? And the results were stunning. Of 4,000 pilots, the number of pilots who were within 15% of the average on all 10 measurements was zero, not a single pilot. And to me, wow. this is fascinating. I think that mm -hmm. we walk around you know, at the supermarket or on the mall and we look at other humans and we just think like, yeah, I'm not that different than that guy or gal or that boy or girl or whatever. But the reality is there's a tremendous amount of variability in humans. We've all got a funny shaped something or a little bit longer this or a little bit shorter that. It's just the way humans are. And this is genetics. This is, this is how the species continues to have variability, I suppose, uh, without going down some Darwinian topic that I don't know that much about. But I think it's fascinating. And so this is why I think that talking about men's and women's bikes is a little bit precarious. What I prefer to do is simply look at the rider independent of gender and say, what does this rider need? Do they need a wider foot separation distance or a narrower one? Do they need this size frame or that size frame? Do they need, so here's the, the relevant details. If somebody has longer legs and perhaps longer arms, which tend to go together, but not always, and a shorter torso, then we need a, obviously a taller, shorter frame, a frame with more, um, a little more stack perhaps, but shorter reach because the danger with a short torso is that you end up with a bike that's too long and then you end up with a stem that's too short. So that said, the subtext on that is that it depends a bit on which discipline you're, you're organizing the bike for. During road riding, I would say, remember that when we, stem length impacts handling. And during road riding, most of our turning is done by leaning, not by turning the bars. So we lean a bike to initiate a turn on a road bike. We turn the bars a very small amount at speed. The exception to that is in the parking lot when you're going two miles an hour. That's why toe overlap is a problem when you start and finish rides or at stoplights. You don't worry about toe overlap when you're riding, even down a switchback, uh, because you've got enough speed, because most of the turning is done by leaning. However, when you get to mountain bike and cyclocross, more of our turning is done by turning the bars and less by leaning, which is not to say you don't lean the bike in a mountain bike turn. You do a lot, but you do more turning of the bars. So 
when we turn the bars more, stem length becomes more important because it dictates how much hand movement we need to make a certain impact on the number of degrees of turn angle of the bars. And it also impacts how much stability we have. So that's why mountain bike, gravi mountain bike handling gravitates towards a shorter stem and a wider bar. Whereas in road riding, now it's gone the opposite extreme, especially at the world tour level, you look at all the men and women, everybody's riding these super narrow bars, which I think is a bit weird, to be honest. Aerodynamics are, of course, so important at the world level, but I think that most of these riders are assuming that narrow, really, really narrow handlebars are more arrow, when in fact, we don't know that that's true. I doubt that that many of them have tested the difference between a 40 and a 36. They just put the 36s on and assumed they were faster. That's a reasonable guess, but we don't know that that's true because you have to look at how, when you bring the hands together, how does it impact the geometry or the, the biomechanical arrangement of the shoulder? Does it allow you to shrug the shoulders more or less? Does it, does it destroy the stability of the shoulders and therefore compromise the stability of the hips, which gets into core, right? There's a relationship between the stability of the pelvis and the shoulder girdle. So anyway, bit of a tangent there, but I would say we want to look very closely at the rider. So in our example with a short torso, we don't want a rider with too long of a reach on the frame because then we run the problem where they're on too short of a stem. And even if it's a road bike, we don't want to go, there's sort of a rule of proportionality with stem length. Meaning if someone's 5'2", I don't want them on a 120 stem. It's just not going to feel right. The, the front axle is going to be too close to their sternum and the bike won't handle right. Conversely, I also don't want them on a 30 road stem. That's going to feel bizarre and the bike won't handle quite right either. Uh, not that you could get a 30 road stem, you, you maybe could. But for someone your size, Didi, if I recall correctly, you probably rode a 54 about? Or... I'm a 55. I'm probably the most standard size in cycling if there's any standard. You're like right on the bell curve of everything. <laughs> So, yeah, like I like I I ride all custom bikes, obviously, because we manufacture custom bikes. Mm -hmm. But I'm like 55, 55, okay, center to center, a square frame, a yeah, yeah. And that's and then I have about I I ride about a 12, 12 uh, centimeter stem. Yep, you are. Yeah, you're. I, uh, you're bell curve because I'm pretty flexible, and yeah. I uh, just always and I, I've basically ridden in the same position since the early 90s. Okay, I mean, obviously. I have many bikes, but that's my road position. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my cyclocross is a little bit shorter and mountain bike, you know, obviously a much shorter stem, but, yep. um, yeah, it, I, uh, I'm pretty standard, um, it, it, as far as like standard can go, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you and that I, I think there is just so much individual variability, mm -hmm. um, among the population that it is important to look full spectrum and, and obviously look at individual, uh, flexibility and, um, injuries, for example, can, can have a, a huge impact on, uh, biomechanics long-term. Of course. Right. Yeah. So, of course. Um, yeah, you, you really, as a bike fitter, have to take into account all those all those different factors. Yep, you do, and and that opens a can of worms as far as there's kind of two spectrums on the fit, two philosophies on this fit spectrum. Excuse me. On the one hand, we have a few companies that are kind of of the ethos or mindset that we should methodology that we should have the bike fit the rider, 
And on the other end of that spectrum, we would educate the rider to what is optimal posture and optimal function. And we would work to help the rider achieve that and then build a bike that we might say is what I call tuxedo fit. Meaning if you're going to get married in nine months and you're a little bit overweight, we're going to give, we're going to buy the tuxedo today (laughs) and you're going to go from a 33 to a 31 (laughs) and we're going to be a little bit optimistic. So not, not from a 33 to, you know, a 27, that's unrealistic, but we're going to give you that carrot to help you achieve that optimal fit with the right education, right work. And you have to very carefully interpret how motivated your client is and how, if they're going to fall through on core exercises and mobility. And then you have to be very careful about being too aggressive with the tuxedo fit because um, you can cause a lot of problems for a rider if you are a little too aggressive with that and you're putting them their reach just a bit too far out or the bar is just a bit too low and then they're constantly struggling, right? It, there's a fine line there. But sometimes I'll do that with the right rider. But I want to contrast briefly also with the other example, which is a long torso and short legs, right? And in that case, then obviously we're looking for a lower longer frame in most cases, again, depending a bit on the rider's flexibility and their ability to hinge at the hip. But Mm -hmm. knowing the point being is knowing what your body type is, right? Knowing, do I have a long torso relative to my leg length, my inseam? Um, That Mm -hmm. can be a starting point for selection of frame sizes. And I think that was one of your questions you outlined is how do I pick the right frame size? And this would be the way in which I start to unpack that is understanding how the rider presents. Do they have a really long torso? Do they have a short torso relative to their limb length? Then we can look at different frames and say, okay, I know, for example, like the Cervelo Aspero is a gravel bike with a long, low, uh, it's a long top tube and it's a pretty low stack. So when someone comes Mm -hmm. to me and they've got uh, a really short torso or they're really challenged in flexibility or they've got a little bit of a beer gut and they want to buy an Aspero, I'm going, "Hmm, this isn't the best frame for you right now because... Mm -hmm you're not going to, we're going to have trouble getting you the bars high enough and short enough for you, right? We need to look Mm -hmm. at a model with a longer, a higher stack and a shorter reach to get you a bike that's going to work better. And as a bike fitter, this is even more complicated now because I have so many riders who come to me with bikes like the Sparrow 5 or so many other bikes that are on the road that are these amazing, elegant, sexy, expensive machines, but all the cables are integrated and hidden. And mm-hmm. I'm a bike fitter. I'm not a mechanic. So I have neither the time, training, nor inclination to spend four hours recabling your hydraulic cables that go through the headset bearings. That is, there's no universe where I'm going to do that. So then it becomes a multi-stage process where I put the rider on their bike. I look at them. I say, okay, you bought this amazing Canyon and your bars, I got bad news for you. We need to bring your reach back by 20 mils. Um, now you get to get on the phone with Canyon and negotiate whether you can trade in the old bars or whether you have to buy a new set for a grand or whatever they are. I don't know. And then you get to go to the mechanic. You get to wait for them to get shipped and go to the mechanic and have them install it and come back. And this is a real challenge for bike fitters, not only because you can't give somebody a product on the day when they signed it for their fit, which is a little bit of a bummer, but also you, you have to work with the client, but you also have to really use a crystal ball because you're looking at them and you're going, you know, in the, in, on a traditional, on a steel bike where you can move the seat post up and down and back and forth wherever you want, and you can move the bars or chain stem length, I can go, I think you're going to look best on a 110 stem instead of a 130. We're going to put that on, and I'm going to put 10 mils more spacer underneath, and we're going to just see what it looks like. And then you put it on, and you watch them, and you have them ride for a few minutes, and you go, nope, I was wrong. We need five mils less. 
But when you've got a, an integrated bar situation, none of that is possible. Now, you can use a fit bike, which I have one. I have an SRM e-trainer, which I use as my fit bike, and it's highly adjustable. And you can get away with it if you're clever and it's a lot of futzing and changing of handlebars and brake hoods and saddles and all the things and measurement. And that's bike fitting. But it's still then not perfect. It's, there's never a perfect model to do that. And so there's some, there's some art, there's some interpretation, there's some crystal ball you have to use and go, okay, this is... And it's tricky because as a bike fitter, when you tell somebody to buy a $1,000 pair of handlebars, you better, you better have your act together anyway. Just mentioning integrated bikes don't make our job easy. Yeah, we've run into those same issues in our workshop. Yeah. Um, we obviously, we've like hand build steel frames that are pretty traditional and malleable and easy to work with in terms of uh, changing out stems and seat posts and whatnot. Yep. But we also sell allied integrated frames. Yep. And uh, yeah, you got to have it right from the start or you know, and if you don't, like we do have mechanics doing all the work mm -hmm. and if we don't do it right for the customer and have to redo it, it's, you know, sometimes four or five hours of labor that you're eating, which is, right? that's a lot and yeah. potentially, you know, stems and yeah. Yep. Like now that the stems and the handlebars are integrated, it's, yeah, it's complicated. And, and then, you know, you throw that on top of these bikes are really hard to travel with. And a lot of customers don't, don't realize that. Yep. And, um, we obviously make a big effort to communicate that from the get-go and in, in the beginning of the sales process with, with an integrated frame, but um, you can't remove the handlebars or stem, yeah. right? Or, or move them even, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, uh, there, there's a lot of complications around that. And then the other thing that I'm noticing is a number of the integrated uh, bike frame manufacturers are, you know, they're, the, the, the design's very clean and, and quite beautiful. Mm except that the real reason you would integrate all the hoses and cables is for aerodynamics. And they're building them with big, thick, chunky down tubes, mm -hmm. right? Which aren't very aerodynamic. Right. And some of the forks aren't even that aerodynamic, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I don't know. They're, uh, they're, missing, they're missing some factors, <laughs> I think. Some of the brands, some are, some are doing better than others, but um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, so. I agree. I agree. You know, it, I think largely it's an aesthetic choice. Cycling has always been a sport yeah. that's been beautifully confounded. Uh, there's there's a real old school kind of aesthetic, um, sentimental mentality that some riders carry through the sport. You know, for this Bernardi, no, we used to race without helmets era, and they want things to look. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting. It's like Campy started it, I think, when they started polishing their derailleurs instead of just treating it as a piece of mechanical equipment. And then that set off the whole domino effect. Maybe. I don't know. It'd be really interesting to examine how that started. But bikes have always been sort of this curious blend of function and art, kind of like really expensive watches are, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I was listening to a Joe Rogan, uh, Peter Atia podcast the other day, and they were talking about all the cars they have and all the watches that they have and the Omegas that are 100K each and stuff. It's just <laughs> another universe for me, but it's just hilarious. But they were talking about that blend, how an, a, a watch is sort of a man's jewelry, but it's it's mm -hmm. manly, it's it's yang, it's functional because it's it does stuff. You know, it doesn't just look pretty. It does stuff first, but then it can look pretty. <laughs> and somehow that makes it okay in the man's world. It's so funny. So I think bikes have a lot of that going on. 
um, which makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and I think also the like cycling, I, I think the masses have been hugely influenced by what the professionals ride, mm-hmm. which isn't always a good fit for the everyday oh, rider. Agreed. Yeah. Like like carbon as a bike material is is great from a power to weight perspective, but it's not so great from like a durability or comfort perspective, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes it's actually hard to talk customers around that mm. or clients around that and, and why a different material might be a better fit for them or why, uh, you know, a different geometry frame might be a better fit for mm. them. They, they see the pros winning on X bike and, you know, they, they want it. They think that's going to make them go faster, but yeah. it's not always. A well, so. of course. And. You know, I hate to point out something that's really maybe obvious to the three of us, but I've discovered isn't obvious to everyone else. Pros get paid to ride stuff. It's not like they have a choice. So when you're watching whoever, uh, whatever amazing woman climb uh, some cobbled Belgian hill and then win a race on her canyon or her specialized, you know, if she were left her own devices, well, none of that even matters. Like the fact is she's a professional athlete. She's handed this equipment and told like, this is a condition of you riding for this team and being paid a salary. You're going to ride this saddle, these bars, um, these water bottles. Everything's determined except maybe depending on the team, the shoes. That's the only telltale sign of a rider has some selection. Most teams don't stipulate what shoes riders use. Some do. But even then, a lot of times it's still the shoe companies that have the money that can offer a rider an individual contract. So you know, I know Physique pays a lot of riders a lot of money to ride their shoes, etc. So... Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not saying these are good or bad relationships or companies. What I'm saying is that we have to filter what we see as pros' choices. I mean, I've worked with a lot of professional athletes in my career, as I'm sure the two of you have, and, and I'm sure all of us feel the same way. For every rider that I've worked with, I could ask them, okay, of the 52 pieces of equipment you are mandated to ride, what's your number one most loved and what's your top three hate list? And they can name you the, the piece that drives them insane instantly, you know, whether it's the saddle or the handlebars or the uh, sports bars they have to use that make their stomach feel like it's gonna, they're going to hurl every race, whatever it is. They've always got one they can pick immediately because you put enough equipment in a pile that big, inevitably you're going to have one piece that the rider can't stand. But they deal with it. it that's their job. Yeah, so let's, now let's dive into some, some issues with bike fit. And, um, since saddle is so central to a good fit, let's, let's start there. Um, Colby, have you found some differences in trying to find the right saddle for men versus women? I mean, I'm assuming it's, it's beyond the width and just based on kind of what you were talking about in terms of variability, mm-hmm. be interested to hear, yep. hear how you go about fitting the saddle. Yeah. Um, great question. Yeah, I have, I would say the biggest difference between fitting men's and women's saddles is that Unfortunately, it's just harder for me to find a better fit for women. Um, women are kind of ice skating uphill, trying to, trying to make a bike saddle that works. I hate to say it, but I, my goal as a fitter is to find a saddle that disappears under the rider, meaning 98 out of 100 times when you go ride your bike, you never think about your saddle. It's just like your derailleur. You just sit on it and there's no issues. It's there and it does its job, but it's always there, but never heard, right? Or felt. And that's a hard, that's a a steep, I'll say it's a high standard, but a lot of writers, I'll mention that a lot of writers are, when I tell them that their mind kind of explodes a little bit because they never really thought that a bike saddle could be that way. 
And 10 or 15 years ago, that was probably the case, but we've had massive steps forward in saddle technology. So as far as your question about width goes, I think width is a bit of a red herring or it's sort of like a 50,000 foot view. What is width? It's literally the widest point of the saddle. So if you just took a two rulers and just brought them in sideways and then measured the distance from those rulers when viewing the saddle from the top, that would be the width. But we don't sit there on the saddle. Those parts of the saddle are never under us. They're to the side of our glutes. Uh, and so it's an indicator of what might work, but it's a very, very 50,000 foot view. We have to get a lot more nuanced. So what I found is that most women, not all, but most women will benefit from a saddle with a cutout. But for some women, it's actually kind of flip-flops and goes the other way. And the perfect um, way to think about that is Specialized kind of figured out the same thing with some of their saddles. So they have a saddle with a technology called Mimic. And um, I'm definitely not here to be a Specialized commercial, full disclaimer, but this is worth unpacking. So the Mimic is the very front nose of the saddle is covered with a soft gel. And when they did some pressure mapping with women, what they discovered was on, when they correlated the reports of uncomfortable or versus comfortable with saddles, they realized that when a saddle had a big cutout, there was just too much pressure on the lateral sides of their stuff. And that didn't work. So they had to find a way to distribute pressure over a larger surface area, but without making anything too firm. So they came up with this gel in the front. And what I found is that there are that saddle is extremely polarizing for women. So some women, I put them on a saddle with Mimic with this gel stuff in the front nose of the saddle, and immediately they're saying to me, this is the most comfortable saddle I've ever ridden. Put them on all my bikes. And I'm not a specialized dealer. I just source the, I outsource these as a solution for my clients. But other women get on it, and immediately they're saying, get that thing away from me. I want nothing to do with this. And that's independent of the nose um, width or the overall width, it's independent of the model. That sort of seems to be a theme. So for some women, the Mimic saddle can be, it's the only saddle on the market that I found like that. So for some women as a tip, you might, I would say go try one and see, and you'll probably know pretty quickly whether it's good or bad, uh, which makes it an easy choice. But generally speaking, I find really good success with the SMP line of saddles and I do sell them but I sell them because they're some of the best saddles I've found. And so that's why I use them. For my men, my success rate with SMP is very high. It's probably over 90%. Men, I get them on the right model SMP and it works. And the reason it works is because the saddle has the combination of the biggest curve and also the biggest cutout. And ischium, which are your sit bones, colloquially that people call them the sits bones or sit bones. I don't know why some people pluralize sit or sits. But think of them like rocking chair feet. They're wider in the back and a little bit narrower in the front and they're curved, right? And they're designed to sit on a hardwood floor so that the chair can rock back and forth. That's kind of how your ischium are. And so when you line up your ischium on a curved saddle, it's narrower in the front and wider in the back like an SMP, then you can see how the bones are supported by that channel, by that shape, uh, by those kind of two hammocks. And you can also see that a saddle with a more traditional shape like uh, a Concorde or a Flight or uh, the modern interpretation of those is like a physique arione. Um, these saddles push up in between those rocking chair feet into your soft tissue, into your perineum. And for the vast majority of riders, this is really problematic because you're supporting the weight of your torso on your perineum. Doesn't matter if you're a guy or gal, same problem. And you're, 
then therefore you're cutting off blood circulation. You're also making the pelvis less stable because you're not supporting under the ischium. So the ischium can rock back and forth. They kind of almost are encouraged to rock over that dome-like surface that's pushing up into the perineum. So this decreases pelvic stability. And one of my, my two sort of preconceived notions of outcome on a bike fit, I, you know, the first rule being there are no rules in fitting are I try to have the straightest spine possible when in the hoods because we want we don't want the spine to be flexed all the time. Spines don't like ongoing flexion. And I want a stable anchored pelvis because that tells me things are, you have relatively symmetrical power generation and you're going to put less stress on the back, the knees, the IT bands, etc. So when we have that, those conditions where we're, I'll say we're more likely to have those conditions in my experience when we have a saddle that supports the ischium, the bony ischium underneath. So what I do is I put people on different SMPs and I find the shape that fits their ischium the best based on their feedback. I don't use pressure mapping. That's a bunch of crap in my opinion, not to bag on anybody who uses it. That's fine. Use your tool for you. But for me, the answer is always the same. You're asking the person like, what do you feel? Where's the pressure? And I don't need a $5,000 computer to tell me that. I can just ask them and get to the same place. So I use that. If they don't find an SMP that works for them, then I have other solutions. I go to the Pro or the Pro Stealth Curve is a common saddle for me. I'll run them through the Specialized. Those are also saddles with cutouts, but with less curvature. And then last resort would be I would go to a flat saddle. Um, and I, I prefer to use a saddle with some curve because the ischium are curved in a human being. It's just a question of how curved they are. So sometimes if the curve on your pelvis, on the underside of your ischium, the inferior side of your ischium is, is more curved, you're going to need a more curved saddle. But sometimes if it's more towards the straighter side and you put them on a saddle with too much curve, then they're sort of not reaching the bottom and they feel pressure in the front or rear no matter what you do with the nose angle. The other rule I'll say is I prefer a saddle with less padding. What is padding? Padding is a gasket or a void space filler designed to make a one-size-fits-all solution. This is the problem. This is what we discussed earlier is the fact that we've gone from manufacturers that had an infinite number of sizes with a steel custom frame or even a manufacturer that used to have 10 or 12 or 8 sizes down to 3 or 5. So we're forcing more and more riders into more one-size-fits-all bins. And you can have any stem size you want as long as it's an integrated 120 with a 42 bar or whatever, right? With the mere penalty of $1,000 to go to one size different. And that's what you got. And this is the unfortunate truth of bike fitting. It's that economically, it's far more efficient to shovel people into holes and try to make things a little adjustable. But with the integrated bar, we get even less adjustable. So it's ironically, the bike industry is going back to where the Air Force was in 1910. The reason all those planes were crashing is the cockpits weren't adjustable. So you got someone in there with a long femur and a short torso and they couldn't see the gauges and then they crashed because they made a mistake while they were flying. What was the Air Force's conclusion from that article? It was that we need to make cockpits way more adjustable to fit the population. That's what we learned from that. But bikes, bikes are going the other way. <laughs> we're back to that 1910 cockpit. So anyway, when we are choosing a saddle we want pelvic stability for those reasons I outlined before. When we put a lot of padding on a saddle, even though that might be the rider's inclination is I'm feeling pressure, I need to pad it. To me, that just tells me the padding is in the wrong place or the shape is incorrect. So whenever I test saddles, I put people on less padded saddles that more quickly allows us to discern which shape will or won't work for them. And then once I choose that shape, then I, or they choose the shape, then we 
increase the padding bit by bit until we get to where the minimum amount of padding I can get away with because then we allow them to have a more stable pelvis. When we have that void space filler, that gasket, between the two shapes that don't really fit together, the curved ischium and the flat saddle, for example, and we just jack up a bunch of padding, then we cause multiple problems. We cause pelvic instability because of all that moving and bouncing or chafing, right? And then we also can cause pressure points because the padding shape is designed to be a one-size-fits-all solution, but it's not really addressing the true curvature of the bony ischium. So hopefully that's some practical advice on saddles. As far as width goes, when saddles do come in different widths, I here's one thing, one observation I'll make is that people tend to, as a bike fitter or as a shop employee, if you're recommending a saddle width, if you put someone on the buttometer or whatever that thing's called, and you measure their ischium width or ischial tuberosities, that's only a rough indicator. Again, it's a 50,000 foot view. When we're sitting on a bike, when you're in the drops, when you're rotated forward, you're sitting on the ischiopubic rami, which are two bony little protuberances near the front of your pelvis, right? You're rotated forward or anterior. That's when you're in the drops and you're really arrow. You're sitting closer to those ischiopubic rami. And then as you rotate back a little bit, when you go to the hoods, perhaps you're in between the rami and the ischial tuberosities. And then maybe when you're on the tops, you've got more contact towards the ischial tuberosities. That would be a common way to look at how the pelvis rotates on the saddle forward and aft, or I should say anterior and posterior. Um, so when we measure the distance between the ischial tuberosities, which is what most sit bone width measurement devices do, it's not really telling us it's one data point out of 20 that we need. That's why it's kind of potentially misleading. And so, so that's why when I have riders test saddles, I have them ride in the drops. I tell them to put their nose on the stem or their chin to the stem, like they're chasing on a small group in a headwind and feel how the saddle feels under that forward anterior rotation. Then I have them sit up a bit into the hoods as though they're climbing a medium grade. Then I have them sit up onto the tops as they're climbing a steep grade. And we feel how the saddle relates to them in those different positions. And we can get feedback on that. And that also helps us dictate nose angle. I think I kind of wandered a bit there on that. Hopefully that was linear enough. No, that's good. I have a couple, couple questions. Um, so my understanding, like for my fitting is typically like the saddle companies want the idea is they want those bony structures supporting themselves, mm. supporting the, the rider. Yeah. So, you know, like the sit bones are on the saddle that with the SMP, I don't have a ton of experience with SMPs, but it's my understanding, like the sit bones are kind of off the side and it's kind of mm. the, like the saddle is nestled. So they're kind of anchored on the side of the saddle. Um, the ischial tuberosities may be kind of off to the side. It depends on which model you're talking about, but no, they're, they're really supported. And as you roll forward, okay. the, the ischium are right along the top, uh, gotcha. the superior aspect of the saddle. That is the top part. Yeah, they roll right along. Gotcha. They match that. Now, there's a brand in Portugal that's really interesting called Jelu, J-E-L-U. I can send you the, the website if you want, and we can drop in the show notes. But it's a really interesting saddle design, and his concept is to have the ischium always sit just outside the high point of that channel. Hmm. And that's a different design. And um, his, that's his philosophy is that we don't want to actually support the weight of the torso on the ischium. We want to be just outside it. And I've tried one of those saddles on my road bike for about the last three months, and I'm pretty impressed. It's a new design. I haven't quite got my head wrapped around how to present that to my clients yet. Still a work in process. But I'm, 
you know, I've been an SMP guy for years. I've got them on all my bikes except my road bike now. But again, this goes along with my philosophy of strong opinions that are weekly held, meaning this is everything I can give my customer that I believe right now. It's the best information I have, but I will abandon it in half a second if I find a better paradigm. The goal is to help the customer not be attached to some product or some outcome or solution. I provide as many solutions as I can. That's why I'll go buy specialized saddles to have them in my shop at retail for my clients because I'm just looking for a solution. My objective is not to sell you a saddle. It's to find the right solution for whoever we're working with. So right. when I have a woman who's having challenge with saddles, I'll just go, we'll go through a dozen saddles in one session. I just put them on the bike, put them on the bike, put them on the bike, and just keep going until we find the one that's best for her. Then I send her out the door and let her go ride it for two or three weeks. And I coach her on yeah. how she can make minor adjustments to nose angle, right? I coach yeah. her on what solutions she can, what, what sensations will help us further discern where to go if this saddle doesn't work or what improvements we can make in the position that will help her, right? And then that's in the context of the total conversation of the deep core. If like a rider presents with, we'll say, increased lumbar lordosis, which would be anterior pelvic tilt, or decreased lumbar lordosis, uh, or increased superior tilt of the pelvis, that's going to cause her relationship with the saddle to change. If her inner core unit functioning is really poor, this applies to men also, same this I'm just using women as the example, but again, I see this in all genders, then we have to have a conversation about training the core in a way that's going to stabilize the pelvis. So someone could be on what is potentially the ideal saddle shape for them, but if their deep core isn't firing, if they have pelvic floor trauma, if it's a woman who's given birth and did not properly condition her pelvic floor or her lower abdominal tone after birth, she might be on the perfect saddle for her, but never be comfortable and constantly battling sores and chafing because the pelvis isn't steady enough. So then you've got to deal with that inner unit function, right? This is a critical point. I did a great ep issue uh, episode on my pod with Shara Simmons, um, who's a Czech practitioner and a MAT practitioner out of Fort Collins. And we told a story about one of my male clients, a guy named Steve, who had that exact situation. His, his core just wasn't turned on. And we went through a dozen saddles and he couldn't get comfortable until he went and saw Shar and she helped him. And now he's dialed. He feels great. As long as he keeps up mm -hmm. on his exercise. Mm -hmm. Just, I want to step back just quickly, mm -hmm. just the idea of the shape of the saddle. You know, it's, it's always just blows me away watching like world tour racing and everybody's just forward on their saddles. Yeah. And so with that really curved saddle, I'm curious, just it is, I mean, I guess it is a fact that we are going to move around a lot on our saddle, depending on the terrain. Um, just curious if you find that's difficult in terms of moving around on the saddle, on those more curved saddles. Yep. And then also I think about for myself, just like cyclocross racing and, you know, when you're hopping back on the bike mm -hmm. and kind of having that, that big landing spot yep. on a, with a flatter saddle. Like if you think like those SMPs work well for like a cyclocross discipline. Yeah. Great questions. I would say that the biggest resistance I get to SMP for people who aren't familiar with them when they see them for the first time or maybe they know about them, first, they think they look really weird and they comment on that beak nose and they're really hung up on that. And I'm like, dude, I'll ride a hot pink tricycle if it's the best tool for the job. Meaning I my preference is always function over form. Form is an afterthought for me. And I like things that look nice, but function is everything. This is why I have such a hard time with physique shoes because they're confused and they make them look like Italian dress shoes rather than a foot. Sorry, physique. 
So that's the first part is the aesthetics of the SMP, but the second part is the curve. And I, I have this discussion in my head about 99 Italian wives tales about bike fitting, right? Our sport is so entranced with this folklore of how things ought to be. And one of the points is that we should be able to slide forward on the nose on the flats and be air quotes on the rivet and push back in the saddle during the climbs. And for me, this is, this is kind of garbage, to be honest. I think that most people are better served by having a relatively more fixed point on the saddle. And when people get on an SMP for the first time, it has such a deep curve that almost immediately, invariably, someone who's never ridden a saddle like that says, wow, I really feel locked in place. And then usually there's an assignment of value to that statement. Sometimes people say that's good, like, wow, I really like it. Or they say, ooh, I don't know if I like this. And in the case of them wanting to move forward on the nose of the saddle, um, I'll say that when you come from a flat saddle to a curved saddle, you tend to believe, uh, from what I've observed, that people will think, oh, I can't move forward. But the reality is you can. You can slide forward on that nose. You're just gaining altitude as you do that. And remember, as we slide forward, if we think about leg extension as being a radius from the circle with the center of the circle at the center of the bottom bracket, if when you slide forward on a horizontal, you're going into underextension. You're decreasing your saddle height. You're also moving your butt forward over the bottom bracket and decreasing the leverage arm, the lever arm of the length of the femur, and you're also down-regulating glute recruitment. So I would argue these are all less than optimal things. And they're functional workarounds for somebody who needs to deliver a lot more power under a shorter range of motion which suggests to me that possibly your crank arms are too long or that you just aren't quite trained for the demands of your event, however you want to look at it. But when we, go, when we have a, a curved saddle and we go towards the nose, remember, people think, oh, it's going to be really uncomfortable. Well, probably not because if you're pedaling really hard, you're offsetting the weight of your torso on that saddle. The harder you push down on the pedal, the less weight there ends up being on the nose. So it ends up working out, believe it or not. Um, but as you gain altitude, we're closer to being on the radius of that circle. Meaning, even though we're scooching forward and we are still down-regulating glute recruitment, we are still maintaining leg extension at the bottom of the stroke. So I would argue that's a good thing. And I had the same question you did, Julie, when I first became uh, hooked on SMP. It was about 2013. I put one on my road bike, rode it for about four months, got it figured out, had a bunch of adjustments and some adaptations, started to get my head wrapped around it, really got, fell in love with the saddle. And then I went to Puerto Rico for a vacation and took an old travel bike with me that had a physique on it, an Arione. And I thought, well, I should put an SMP on here. And then I had a moment that I've ridden this saddle for eight years. What could go wrong? I'll put it on there. It'll be an interesting experiment. And I flew down there, got on my bike, went for my first ride. And in five minutes, my head exploded because I couldn't believe how uncomfortable the physique was. And then I'd ridden it for eight years. It literally blew my mind. I stood on the side of the road and just stopped riding and looked at my bike for like 15 minutes. And what that taught me was really important that prior to that experience, if you asked me how comfortable my SMP was on a scale of one to 10, I would have said it was a 10 out of 10. But now it was a six because I didn't know what a real 10 was. And I would never, ever, ever ride a physique Arione again in my life. And I rode that saddle at the Olympic games. So that tells you a lot about what I learned about myself. It's funny that your Ari own story. I borrowed a mountain bike the other day. And well, actually it was my son's bike. And he normally rides an Aliante. Yep. But on his mountain bike, there's a Arione. Yep. And I hadn't ridden an Arione in years. And it was like the most painful experience. <laughs> like you described it so well earlier. And when when you were talking about like 
feeling like you're shifting like over this like blob in the middle, yeah. the whole rock. <laughs> yep. I couldn't get comfortable. I kept jumping out of the saddle and I got home and I'm like, what are you doing with this saddle on your bike? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I know it's not awesome, but I mean, he's like, I'm in and out of the saddle all the time on the mountain bike yeah. anyways. Yeah. The literal <laughs> translation of the cobbler's children go bare feet, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, Julie, you'd asked yeah. about jumping on and off the bike too for cross. I'll just address that. Like I got, I got back from Puerto Rico, decided I was done with all with physique. I put SMPs on all my bikes, my mountain bike and my cyclocross bike. And I had exactly the same concern. Am I going to get hooked up on the chamois? Am I going to be able to move to the nose on my mountain bike? And I'll tell you one ride, none of that mattered. Interesting. None of it mattered. I somehow I got on and off the bike for three years or a single speed cross on an SMP. Never had an issue. Never had an, you just jump, wow. you just figure it out. Your body knows like proprioceptively you figure out where you have to land on the saddle. And I just did it. Mountain bike. I would get up on the nose on steep climbs to keep my nose uh, on the nose of the saddle to keep my nose close to the stem, to keep the wheel from rising and keep traction. Never an issue. Have those bikes. Those saddles are on all my bikes. Now that's the Forma model, which is completely unpadded. It's a carbon base with leather only, no padding. I mean, you've got a 15 mil pad on your butt. I don't have like an iron grundle or anything. I'm just a normal person. But it, the shape fits my bony ischium, so I don't need any more padding. Nor do I want it because when I go to a more padded model, I just feel disconnected and I feel like things are bouncy and chafy and movey and jiggly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah, get as much fe feedback. Yeah, one of the other things that we find happens with the padded saddles is they wear out really quickly. Yep. And uh, like they, they might work well for like a month and you start putting miles on the bike yep. and, you know, they're, they become a different saddle and in a not so positive way for a lot of people. I agree. So, Hey, Colby, thanks. Thanks so much for your time and joining us. We really appreciate it for the launch of our podcast and just, you know, can we kind of conclude this podcast with you, you know, providing from your knowledge and experience, um, just like a few good takeaways on the value of a bike fit? Sure. Absolutely. I would say that find the most qualified fitter you can near you. Um, a good a resource for that is uh, IBFI, which is International Bike Fitting Institute. You can go to that website and it's got an interactive map that'll show you the fitters with their accreditations, which is a pretty cool way to research things, but also word of mouth going to the shop that you trust and finding the best fitter you've got. Um, having a bike fit regularly is super important. I would say yearly is kind of minimum for somebody who's riding a lot because your body's always responding to, tr to stress and changing. And then the golden rule is to know yourself, right? Meaning learn about your own body. Take your injury history, be transparent with your bike fitter. Uh, understand, start to begin to understand which saddles work for you and which ones don't. Know some of your own body measurements. Are, do you have really long legs? Do you have wide hips or narrow hips? There's no good or bad. Like we talked about, there's just individual variation. But knowing these things can really help you make the best decisions with your fit and help your fitter help serve you the best. And make educated choices, for example, about frame the type of frame that's going to work for you. Definitely there are manufacturers that have shorter, taller frames and longer, lower frames. So once you sort of understand the lay of that landscape, then you can make frame choices that are going to serve you better. Um, and if you're confused on that, your bike fitter should be able to help you figure all those out, all those little details out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
I'm so excited right. to oh, hear all your pods. I'm so glad you you two got together and you're going to do a podcast that's going to be awesome. I'm sure you're going to help a lot of people and and help a lot of women ride their bikes faster and be more comfortable and learn all the things. Very excited. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, great to get your expertise and uh, we appreciate you sharing. You bet. Thanks for the opportunity. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.